Welcome to Opera Plot Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real-life opera singer, tells me, Amanda, a real-life human who does not stan olives, about the plot of an opera, and we promptly ruin it for everyone. Are we going to have to talk about olives today? Like, No, just, yeah, just, I just wanted everybody to know. Okay, well, I fundamentally disagree with you. Yep, you, it's one or the other. Nobody <laughs> lukewarm about olives, it seems. Each week, Amanda knows nothing about the opera we're going to talk about. It's true, but I do know who the composer is, and I'm going to tell you about her in one minute or less, so help me God. This week, our composer is Thea Musgrave. Amanda, you've got one minute on the clock. Ready, set, go. Scottish-American composer Thea Musgrave's first memory of music is looking at the insides of a piano while her teacher played and thinking, that is great. She started in medical school at Edinburgh University, but as she grew bored with, quote, cutting up frogs, she found herself meandering next door to the music school. After a while, she took the hint from her feet and switched her course of study. She later studied in Paris with Natalie Boulanger, who was a very big deal, taught everyone who's become anyone from this time period. Thea's composing style led her to invent a subgenre she calls dramatic abstract, in which the musicians themselves become dramatic elements of the piece. Makes sense that she ultimately settled on opera as her primary form refers to Benjamin Britten as Ben, is frequently interviewed and questioned about being a woman composer, to which she has replied, yes, I am a woman, and I am a composer, but rarely at the same time. Normally at this point I tell you when the composer died, but surprise, the MS Grave is still a living composer who was born in 1928, making her 93 years old and still composing during a global pandemic, so how's that for a gut check on your willpower to create? You have seven seconds left. Thea is a shining beacon of wonderment, and I love Okay, her. time. <laughs> but I will totally agree with that last statement. <laughs> also, she's my grandma's age. Thea Musgrave could be my grandma. Yeah. Yep, she's a year older than my grandpa, which is why I kind of went, what, when I saw her birth year. Because <laughs> I love my grandpa very much, but he is not in any kind of shape to be <laughs> composing music. Or, or doing whatever it was. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. She's so fucking cool. And it's yeah, not just so because cool. she's a woman composer. It's just because she's a really fucking good composer. She's also, her brain is cool. Like, I, I watched, and I went to, straight to her website, and there's an interview with her on her website. And, yeah, she seems like a real cool lady. I mean, I really want to talk about, like, her music and why I love it. Do you want me to do that now? Or do, do you want to... Or do you, I can also save it until the plot synopsis is done. It's entirely up to you. You are the driver of this podcast, as always, which everyone listening, if you don't know, uh, without Tina, this podcast would just be me, and that should terrify you. I mean, I think that goes both ways, because without Amanda, <laughs> this podcast would just be me, and that should <laughs> bore you to death. <laughs> It's a symbiotic relationship uh, we have yes, here. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. I was going to say this for after, but let's just gush about Thea Musgrave for a little let's bit. Do. Because she's fucking rad. Yep. So here's what I love about her. You do not listen to Thea Musgrave and think, yep, that's Thea Musgrave, which I mean as a compliment. 
Because when you listen to Philip Glass, you know it's him, right? And the same goes for Benjamin Britten or Wagner, Puccini, Danny Elfman, John Williams, just to bring some more modern orchestrators into the mix. Like, (laughs) they all have a very distinct way of using the orchestra that suits their own voices as composers. But that's not so with Thea Musgrave. She doesn't use the orchestra to suit her own voice. She uses the individual voices of the orchestral instruments to their absolute best effect. She might be the best orchestrator I've ever heard, and that is not hyperbole. Cool. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know what I expected for a reaction to that. Because, <laughs> like, imagine the best orchestrator you've ever heard. It's a hard thing to imagine. It is. It's a hard thing to imagine, especially because even the way you described it is that everybody is so distinct mm-hmm. in their orchestrating style. Uh so I guess, I don't know, it's like an apples and oranges kind of thing. But can we, we can say that she's your favorite, perhaps. She, mm, let me see if I can explain it a little bit better. She almost, it, it's almost as if she has intimate knowledge of every single individual or, uh, ornament, instrument <laughs> in the orchestra. Okay. All right. She actually talks about this in that interview. Really? Yes. She talks about how... The only way she feels, the only way to really compose is to be able to understand the instrument because if you don't, you're not writing for it correctly in, yeah. in, in basically in, in that sense. And that's why when she started writing for opera, it was only after being exposed to – she married an opera conductor conductor um in the 70s and he was like a resident conductor in the virginia opera correct and she was just immersed in it as a result for several years before she started writing for opera because she had to like hear it and she had to be around it and that's a real thing uh orchestral composers all of a sudden plunging into writing for voice and and the singers being like uh cough beethoven <laughs> cough oh my god <laughs> i mean you know everybody <laughs> makes mistakes yeah <laughs> when you say that interview can you tell people what interview you're referring to yes i'm sorry please go to her website which is theamusgrave.com so t-h-e-a-m-u-s-g-r-a-v-e and if you go to her biography section there is just a little there's just a little youtube guy on the right and you can just click play and watch her talk about her work and her life and it's wonderful and actually we'll just link that to the related links on our page um yeah no it's it's great and she it's oh gosh it's like you know, it's like 12 minutes long. She she gets into a lot of stuff, and it's fascinating. That's awesome. I should watch yeah. that. I, di- yeah. I did not watch that before, like, writing this big old gush that I wrote about her orchestration, which, by the way, goes on for several more paragraphs, and we'll <laughs> dive into it. But it's, it's, it's interesting to have a composer who is living and has, like, an actual website, yeah. like, their own website that you can I go know. to. I know it was so it, it is strange to write those biographies it, it's, it's almost better because you're getting the knowledge firsthand you're getting the information firsthand and you're not like constantly suspicious that it's been warped over time well like, I mean usually. it's warped by her being herself well, yeah I suppose but I don't know like 
I feel like I'm a good judge of character and she probably has a fair amount of self-awareness, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> if Wagner wrote his own website, it would well, definitely not like say Wagner... like Wagner is shit. His Wagner... orchestration sucks. <laughs> okay. I didn't meet Wagner, obviously, but I feel like if I had, and if anybody has a time machine, let me know. Cause this might be the thing I decide to go do. Uh, meet him and see if he stinks of narcissism to the degree that I suspect he does. <laughs> Whereas Thea Musgrave, I don't think Mm-mm. does, Mm-mm. and that's Mm-mm. why I think I why why I think I like her orchestration so much because, like I said, it sounds like it sounds like she can fluently play every single one of these instruments. Yeah, yeah. And it is it is not her saying, this is my voice. She's saying, this is what this instrument can do to yeah. serve the drama. And yep. it's like, it's like, okay, so trumpets playing at this speed in this range have this kind of emotional impact in the orchestra. And that's just one voice within this hugely complex texture where yeah. every instrument is layered perfectly to really express the complexity of the drama and what i love is that it's like Mahler in scope if you've listened to this podcast you know that i am a huge fan of Mahler. it's just it's huge it's layered it is like strauss in its complexity it's like britain in the way the drama unfolds it's everything that i love about romanticism where there's like a tonal relationship within the music but that tonality is pushed to its very limits where it's Mm -hmm. like bursting at the seams Oh, cool. And the dissonances are used to really great effect because you know their dissonances because they have a relationship to consonances, but they aren't just free dissonance, right? Okay. They're there so, for a reason. Yeah, you just got very technical. I feel like I know what you refer, you're refer you referring to when you say dissonances, and that's like notes that rub together and make you go, ooh, because they're not. I'm trying to explain this for like the lay person because we have those in our listening audience. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, dissonance is like, how would it's you... like in a story, if you have conflict and then you have resolution, mm-hmm. the story can't be all conflict all the time for no reason without resolution or there is no arc to it. Right. Yep. And music is kind of the same way where dissonance is like the conflict and then the resolution is like the, the resolution. <laughs> Well, yeah, the resolution, but you also referred to consonants, and I'm assuming that consonants is the opposite of, of dissonance in that way. Yeah, and con- the, the definition of consonants has changed over time. Like, there was a point where only perfect octaves were considered consonant, and then we let in perfect fifths, and then thirds were okay. <laughs> My God, what is it coming to? <laughs> we still hate the tritone, which is called the devil's interval, <laughs> the because devil's apparently interval. it lets the devil into your life. Oh, but, of God. course, we use it in dominant chords all the time because it's so interesting. So, like, <laughs> yeah, that definition has definitely changed changed so she has she has clear relationships within the tonality but she uses the dissonance to great dramatic effect and not just like free dissonance everywhere woo <laughs> uh would you say that eric whitaker is free dissonance everywhere woo? yes uh <laughs> free dissonance everywhere boo <laughs> <laughs> oh man i mean i get it i do but it's just you know it just i like stuff that yanks at me i guess this yanks at you you have to you just have to oh i'm sure it, it does i'm sure it does but i also like, maybe i'm just <laughs> i'm just a masochist and that's why i like 
Eric Whitaker because it just like relentlessly presents you with conflict with dissonance. <laughs> yeah, that's like, oh man, the 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 big conflict that I have is like the straight tone choir voice singing that the sopranos are required to do, which I have a huge okay, issue with. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's not sour this with Eric. It Whitaker. has a place. It has a place. The pol- the polyphony recording of a lot of his music is. I mean, it's got, I just can't, I can't, I don't deal well with the fact that you have such an issue with Eric Whitaker because there is so much Eric Whitaker that I feel like is really good and cool. My Eric Whitaker is your olives. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) That's a terrible, that's a false equivalency. And I No, it's not. I I love olives. I cannot get behind it. (laughs) <laughs> Let me just get behind it. talk more about Thea Musgrave because I think we can both get behind her. <laughs> Fine. So, <laughs> um, where was I in this huge gush about her? Um, Dissonance and consonants is where I yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly, I honestly think that she probably plays most of these instruments, and she probably sings all the voice types. She's probably both a bass and a coloratura soprano because she knows how to write for the voice so well like she knows where where the edges are and where the comfort zones are and she employs it to really great effect within the drama Mm -hmm. like if you want the music to call sound calm and at ease write the violins in this range write the oboe in this eight this range if you want the tension to rise like write this for the tenor because it's going to sound really tense it's it's so wonderful and what's so great is that you don't actually need to see a staging to understand what's going on in this drama because the music it's in perfect harmony with what's happening. And you occasionally get that with other composers, but I don't know anybody else who does it 100% of the time to such great effect. Like she is legitimately the best orchestrator That's I've awesome. ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. To your point about you bet that she plays all these instruments, I think you're absolutely right about that. She kind of alludes to it in that interview where she essentially, she makes it sound like her sentence is just not totally clear. She doesn't come right out and say like, I learned how to play all these instruments. So I, I think you're right that she probably at least minimally plays all these instruments and or can hit most of the notes for these voice parts. Um, because one of the reasons that she gave for feeling like you really have to acquaint yourself with the instruments and voice parts is that musicians, and these are, it's a paraphrasing of her words, not mine, although I do agree. Um, musicians generally feel as though whatever has been written on the page, they must sing. And so they're never going to come at you with feedback that's like, this is not comfortable. This is not something I can easily do. This is not something that feels natural to me. They're just going to like power through it and think that they're terrible if they can't do it. (laughs) And so in writing, she really strives to understand the voice parts and the instrument parts well enough to not have to rely on a shit ton of feedback from those instrumentalists and singers who are not going to give her the level of feedback that she really needs to improve. That is so true. As somebody who has done workshops for multiple world premieres, I know that there are some people who will just do what is written and say, well, it's up to me to make it work. And it is. But there are some people who will actually do the opposite and complain about something that they haven't even tried. 
They'll go, oh, it's too hard. I can't do it. And then it's one person's opinion and something like really awesome is lost because of that one person. And I guess I'm speaking for the singers. The orchestra never complains in these like final yeah. and that is what workshops. she's more referring to. She didn't spe- she didn't specify, but she alluded to the fact that she's talking more about instruments than she is about voice parts. But I would be willing to bet based on what you just said, that there's at least an overlap in philosophy, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, she must have studied bel canto or something because she writes for the voice so well. And what's even more incredible is that even though her orchestration and her writing is so layered and complex and huge in scope, every single voice is distinct. The words are perfectly understood. Like, she knows exactly how to layer voice with orchestra to make it understood. And she even layers voices over voices with different text and you can still understand it. Love it is that. genius. It is genius. I can gush about this forever. She's truly a master of her craft. And I don't know why she isn't a household name. Oh, yeah. It's probably because she's a woman. But like, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's probably because she's a woman. It's also probably because like as we have discussed many a time composers in this genre don't become household names until they've been dead for 20 or 30 years yeah but like philip glass is still alive and everybody knows who that is well yeah but he busted into hollywood and john adams everybody knows who john adams is. busted into hollywood did he john adams as in like nixon in china john adams Oh, it's such a generic name. He could yeah. be a politician from the I was 1800s. The, I, what's the name of the guy, the Star Wars composer? That's John Williams. Oh, uh, yeah. See, a couple of couple of Johns. Just a couple, couple of Johns. Johns. Generic Johns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I have no explanation for John Adams. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Other than that he was the second president of the United States. and he actually wrote an opera about a president of the united states so (laughs) i mean i feel like if your name is john adams you almost have to yeah like i'm sure i'm sure like everyone in his friend group was like when are you gonna write a major president and he was just like god damn it you guys fine you're gonna have so much fun when we talk about (laughs) nixon in china (laughs) so today we are actually going to talk about an opera called harriet the woman called moses Is this an opera about Harriet Tubman? It is an opera about Harriet Tubman. Oh my god, what? That's very exciting. That's very exciting. (laughs) No, I didn't know that there was. I mean, I just recently saw that there was a... a, When when was this composed? This was composed back in the 80s. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I just saw that there's one more recently composed and I was like super jazzed and I tweeted about it. But I didn't realize that there was a more a less recent version well so there are three that i know of about harriet tubman and they were all composed by thea musgrave what (laughs) (laughs) well now i'm confused i wonder if the more recent one was that but i'll I'll talk about that in a hot second so harriet the woman called moses is an opera in two acts it's roughly two and a half hours in length with a with music and libretto by thea musgrave which I'm sure we will have plenty of discussion about. Uh, She first had the idea to write an opera for black singers in 1980 when her husband, Peter Mark, the conductor of Virginia Opera, was auditioning singers for Porgy and Bess. And I'm sure she was like, this Uh, is the only opera for black singers. Let me write another one. I mean, she's not wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Porgy and Bess was written by three white men. (laughs) 
And, and this was written by written one by white, white woman. woman. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely still issues there. But she she's not wrong in thinking that there are not enough operas about and for black singers. Agreed. Yes. So Musgrave chose Harriet Tubman as the subject because, quote, Harriet is every woman who dared to defy injustice and tyranny. She is Joan of Arc. She is Susan B. Anthony. She is Anne Frank. She is Mother Teresa, unquote. Which, of course, is a whole list of white ladies. <laughs> it is. And I'll, I'll just point out that Anne Frank didn't really dare defy injustice and tyranny so much as experience it as a victim. Yeah. But yeah. that's another story. That's not to diminish what she went through. It's just that she didn't, like, stand up against it. Like, Harriet Tubman. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Harriet Tubman's a badass. So, like, I get wanting to write an opera about it. So this opera was written in 1984 while Musgrave was a Guggenheim Fellow, and it premiered in 1985 as a joint production of Virginia Opera and Royal Opera in London, and then it had radio broadcasts on National Public Radio and BBC Radio 3, which actually I believe is the production that I listened to, and I will talk slash gush about that later. Uh, Musgrave later wrote a shortened version of the opera and called it The Story of Harriet Tubman. She wrote this in 1990, and it premiered in 1993 and she also turned it into a concert work called Remembering Harriet which she wrote in 1984 along with the full-scale production and that didn't have its premiere until 2006. This so, woman has just got stamina like crazy. In 2006 she was almost 80 years old. She said something and this makes a lot of sense. She she was talking about how you shouldn't you know, everyone should do music if music is in them. Absolutely. Sing, take lessons, perform, whatever. But don't make it your livelihood unless it just is pouring out from within you. And of course, I'm sure there's gray area there for a lot of people. We live in a capitalist culture where we're supposed to make things and be worth money. Um, but it seems that without question... <laughs> Composing is pouring out of her from within. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. There is no ambiguity there because she's 93 fucking years old and she's literally writing an opera as of last year during quarantine. <laughs> I, oh my gosh, can I be her? <laughs> I know, right? God. Well, no, because you don't want to do that because she could die anytime. Can I, can I be her when I am 93? Still no. Still you can't. I have no power over this. Okay. If I can have like half of the drive that she has in life, I think I'll be very successful. <laughs> That's what we want. That's what we want. Oh my God. Thea Musgrave. She's ridiculous. You want to hear about this opera? I do. I really do. Okay. So this piece is loosely based on the life of Harriet Tubman. <laughs> God damn it. Are you serious? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I what say. What the fuck else is it based on? I say loosely because it isn't a linear and then this happened and then this happened kind of story. It's more like. Okay, so it's like a paraphrased version of it's her like, life. It's like extended vignettes from her life. Okay, I mean, that's fair. But saying that it's loosely based on her life sounds more like. So it's not like. It's not like narrative nonfiction. Like if you've oh. ever read. If you've ever read the book The Devil in the White City. Yeah. It's that's narrative nonfiction where it's like 
all of the dialogue is taken from historical sources. None of it is made up. There is just a narrative that is very carefully constructed to fit it. Right. This has a bunch of made up dialogue and like scenarios that we, of course, can know nothing about. And it is just like speculated around. So it's like it's historical historical nonfiction. Yes. It's. Yes, it's historical fiction nonfiction. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. Historical fiction nonfiction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like expanded upon nonfiction. It's so. like it's like the Philippa Gregory's <laughs> Tudor England yes. of Harriet Tubman. <laughs> yes, it is exactly that. It is exactly that. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. I get that. I get that. I'm, I'm jiving with it now. But I have to say that was a very funny thing to say. Especially when we had built this up to be like, it's the story of Harriet Tubman. Who built it up to be that? I certainly didn't. All right. You did that in your own mind. All right. (laughs) Okay. So I think it would behoove us to give a little background on Harriet Tubman in case people don't know. And some of you might not, considering we have a following in Sweden. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah, because Thea Musgrave apparently, so she's Scottish American, which means that she was born and raised in Scotland then moved around a bunch and ended up becoming an American citizen. Why would you do that? I oh, my God. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I mean, it was. It was the 70s. It, it was the 70s. <laughs> People did a lot of regrettable things in the 70s. People did a lot of regrettable things. And also, depending on when in the 70s it was, it might have been pre-Reagan. And so, like, things were theoretically not terrible. <laughs> it was pre-Reagan in the 70s, right? Yeah. Because Reagan was the 80s. God, I'm so young. I'm so young, Tina. I don't it know was before things. my time. I wasn't <laughs> Doesn't matter yet. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Thea Musgrave became an American citizen, and that's why we can call her Scottish-American. But she is Scottish, and so she did not know who Harriet Tubman was until she lived with her husband in Virginia, just down the road from where Harriet Tubman was, like on the other side of the border, where she was kind of shuffling people up through. Um, really? She didn't know yeah. the history of Harriet Tubman? No, she did not. Huh. Until she lived there, and then she learned a lot about it very quickly. Um, so, yeah, there are people who don't know. So talk to, talk to us about Harriet Tubman. Yeah, so Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in Dorchester County, Maryland, and she was not very well treated by her various masters. What? <laughs> yeah. She How was strange. frequently beaten and whipped and she actually suffered a head wound when one of her overseers threw a heavy metal weight with the intention of hitting another enslaved person but missed and hit her in the head instead. Oh, okay. Just what I mean, he was going to try and hit somebody else, so I mean, you know. Yeah. So the intention counts? I don't know. <sighs> so her injury caused dizziness, spells of hypersomnia, which is spells of excessive sleepiness, and pain. And we might call it these days a TBI or traumatic tra- traumatic brain injury. And after this, she started having visions and vivid dreams, which she ascribed to premonitions from God, and she became devoutly religious. And in 1849, she escaped slavery and made it to Philadelphia and returned to Maryland on 13 separate missions to rescue approximately 70 other enslaved people traveling by night across the Underground Railroad Network. And she, quote, unquote, never lost a passenger. 
And when the Civil War began, she worked for the Union Army. She was a cook, a nurse, and then eventually a scout and spy. And she was the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. She guided a raid that freed over 700 enslaved people. And another crazy thing is that she was able to purchase her own property, which is like, as a black person, let alone a woman, in yeah, 1859. Say, woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. And she retired to this property, caring for her aging parents, and was active in the women's suffrage movement. And then she died in 1913, around the age of 90 or 91, which is also crazy for that time. Yeah. So basically, Harriet Tubman was a badass. Total badass. And if you haven't seen the movie Harriet, uh, which came out in the past few years ago yeah is it good i've been meaning to watch it it's good it's real good it's real good i mean i don't know i don't have anything like i don't have a lot to compare it to as far as like biopics about harriet tubman but i really liked it uh the actors are incredible leslie odom jr is just delightful in this movie um and he big heart big giant heart (laughs) eyes for leslie odom jr yeah, so Leslie Odom Jr. and then Harriet Tubman is played by Cynthia Avero, or sorry, Erivo. Just so good. Just really good. I mean, I'm a sucker for period dramas in general. I love the costumes. I love being transported to another time. Um, but when you add in the fact that it's just this incredibly powerful tale of, oh, and Janelle Monet is in it. <laughs> Janelle Monet! Who, um, yes! Will she please have my babies? <laughs> my God. Oh, my God. My little bisexual heart. Well, isn't she married to Jason Momoa? No. <laughs> no, you're thinking of somebody else. You're thinking of Lisa Bonet. Oh, Lisa Bonet. Janelle Monet. Lisa oh, Bonet. Oh, my God. Oh, my no, God. Janelle Monet I was is... about to have, like, an orgy <laughs> fantasy in my brain. <laughs> no, you're thinking of Lisa Bonet, who is also a stone-cold fox and a beautiful woman of color. However, uh, no, Janelle Monet is a modern musician yes i know who janelle monet is okay good (laughs) and if anybody doesn't please go please go listen to her stuff it's awesome uh but yeah it's a real good movie all of that digression to say it is a real good movie thank you i saw previews for it and got really excited and then heard nothing after the previews that's because there was a global pandemic not too long after the fact because it was it came out in 2019. Yeah, but we and all so like 20... wasted our time watching some mulleted gay man in Oklahoma with tigers. Like we could have been watching I th- Harriet that's instead. That's fair. But honestly, I think we all wasted our time watching Tiger King because everything was so heavy and scary. And we weren't going to go jump into a drama that would make us cry. Because I think a lot of people felt like if I make myself cry right now, if I open that faucet, it's just going to gush and gush and gush, and I'm never going to be able to close it up again. Hmm. I think I'm about ready for one of those. Let's bring this movie back. (laughs) Yeah, I'm at that place too. Well, I don't think this opera is going to make people cry, but I think it's going to make people think, why the fuck have we not heard of this opera before? Good. Yeah. I mean, I already feel that way, but go on. It's pretty good. Yeah. So um, our cast of characters, we obviously have Harriet, a soprano. We have Rit, Harriet's mother, who's also named Harriet, but is nicknamed Rit. (laughs) And she's a mezzo. 
We have Benji, Harriet's brother, who's named after Ben, Harriet's father. So they were obviously very unique in their naming scheme. Mm. We have Josiah, who's Harriet's fiance, a baritone. Mr. Garrett, a.k.a. the abolitionist Thomas Garrett, a baritone. Preston, a slave owner, a tenor. The old master, Preston's father, a bass. Mr. McLeod, the overseer. Edward Covey, the leader of the slave patrol. And there are a few speaking roles, like some bounty hunters, a jailkeeper, police sergeant. It's a pretty big cast. Okay. And then we have a chorus. And the chorus is cool because they are a chorus of enslaved people. And they stay on stage for the entire show. And they act like a Greek chorus. Like the male and female chorus in Rape of Lucretia, where they're always there. They're sometimes active participants in the drama, and they are sometimes observers. Oh, cool. I love that. I had a feeling you would like that one. I do. So Act 1 opens with this chorus, and they're crying out for freedom. They actually literally just sing the word freedom, like, over and over a lot. <laughs> Very straightforward in what they're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> no ambiguity there. We, this is, hey, hi, freedom, please. Yes, please. Thank yes. you. <laughs> And then they step aside and reveal Harriet, who is restlessly sleeping because brain injury and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And she is at the house of Mr. Thomas Garrett, who is a Quaker and a member of the Underground Railroad. And she has managed to escape to the north for safety. And she's having a nightmare. And through this nightmare, we get several vignettes from her life that kind of led up to her, to her escape at this point. So the first vignette is a day when all of her people are singing and dancing and having a good time. And she conflates their song and dance with the spiritual Go Down Mo Moses. Are you familiar with Go Down Moses? Go yes. down Moses, way down in Egypt land. Yes, Tell yes, yes, Pharaoh yes, yes. to let my people go. And the yep. overseer hears her and is about to punish her for singing the forbidden song. Oh, oh my. But the old master intervenes and says that everybody should be happy today. Don't whip anybody today because his son Preston is returning home at any moment with his new wife. And everybody starts talking about how they hope that Preston will be happy and less belligerent than he used to be now that he's married and settled down and has a baby and he should be happy and not beat us so much. Uh. And when he arrives... It's apparent that he is the same irresponsible ass that he's always been. And the enslaved people start to worry about what's going to happen when the old master dies. Because their old master we're supposed to assume is like a very benevolent master. He's like, he's still a slave owner, but he's good to us. He's one of the good slave owners. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, that one smacks, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, so they're they're worried about what's going to happen when the old master dies because he's been sick lately, dot, dot, dot. That will happen. And then in another vignette, Harriet and Josiah meet up and talk about their plans to get married. It's a beautifully well-written love duet. It's wonderful. In another vignette, the master and Preston argue because Preston has incurred a huge gambling debt, and he asks for his father's help, and the master says, I cannot afford to pay off any more of your debts. And Preston says, well, you should sell off some of the slaves before they become a problem, because there are rumors of slaves running, and those damn Quakers are helping them, and sell them before they <laughs> run away. 
I'm like, wouldn't you rather just sell off some slaves and see your own son in jail? Like, aren't, aren't, am, am I not your family? Like, why do you feel a responsibility to these people and not me, your son? Uh, <sighs> and uh, yeah, and <laughs> the master is appalled at the idea of selling off some of their people. What's this guy's name? Preston? Preston is the son. Oh my God. That's accurate. <laughs> Such right? A- Douchey white guy named Preston. Uh, I'm from Edina, and <laughs> Preston from Edina. Sorry, that's a that's a local reference. <laughs> For those wow. who 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 don't know, Edina, it's where we like to throw shit. <laughs> it stands for every day I need attention. <laughs> we call them cake eaters. <laughs> no, there's lots of nice people from Edina. If you're listening and you're from Medina, please know that we mean this with, you know, like grains of salt and love and everything. But Edina does have like that's it's the joke. It's the joke in the metro of Minnesota. It's like, oh, you're from Edina. Oh, so you're upper middle class and you're fancy and douchey and needy and all that. I, I don't even know. It's it's baseless. It's <laughs> look, you can go to Edina and drive past like three country clubs within a couple miles of each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's Edina. That's where it comes from for sure. And like the 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 main drag in Edina of like, oh, it's Main Street. It's so quaint. Is these high end shops that are like, yeah, totally like you can't afford it to look in the window <laughs> when pottery barn is the cheapest store on the main drag <laughs> yep yep <laughs> okay so back to this uh to- <laughs> <laughs> our benevolent master is appalled at the idea of selling off some of his people to other masters who may be cruel because he feels a responsibility for them because they've served him well again i'll point out that these people are still enslaved Anyway, Preston realizes that he's probably going to go to jail for unpaid debt, and he gets really upset, so he starts to drink. And his wife, his new wife, calls in Harriet and says, here, take the baby. I need to go comfort my husband. And Harriet sings the baby a lullaby, which incorporates Swing Low Sweet Chariot, which is ironic because she sings it stratospherically high. (laughs) (laughs) And then Preston enters and sees Harriet, who's now a grown woman and quite lovely, holding his baby. And he says, hey, put the baby down and come here because he wants to seduce her. And she's like, no, I I think I should keep holding this baby because she's going to cry if I put her down. And he's like, no, put the baby down. Do what I tell you. But in the end, Harriet manages to defend herself and run off, which just further incites Preston to anger. <sighs> I'm thinking that he is like he's like the the allegory for all like evil slavers. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. Like, let's definitely... pack all of the bad into a single person, and that is well, Preston. slash. At the same time, I feel like it's I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> So I can't say. Um, and of course, my my perspective on this has been highly influenced by, you know, amalgams like the one you just described of like, OK, this is a narrative. We're going to compile all this into one person and make it an allegory. But I don't know. I feel like to be able to enslave directly enslave other humans um, requires a certain degree of even at that time period, I think it requires a certain lack of. Um, emotional evolution, I guess. And we're also talking about 
people with I mean we live in a time period where there's just like immense access to information about the way other people live and the way other people think and theoretically (laughs) there should be a lot more worldliness and compassion built in but if we give these people the benefit of the doubt from this other time period we can say well they haven't been exposed to as much of different cultures and so they don't have as much challenging their own worldview I mean we're also talking about people living through times when death can be rampant and war can be really brutal um all I'm trying to say is it would not surprise me in the slightest if a lot of slave owners <laughs> were very emotionally unstable and did a lot of this a lot of the bad things not just one or two like they didn't just cherry pick one or two they had the whole smorgasbord of the horrible things that you can do as a slave owner Oh, yeah, yeah, I am absolutely sure. Purely speculative, of course, but again, I think it takes a certain type of person to directly enslave other people. Oh, totally agreed, totally agreed. And and it's a different kind of evil to justify enslavement through benevolence, you know? And and I, I know that we are supposed to feel for the old master and like he's existing within this system that he was raised in and his farm is failing and like he cares for these people but he he can't he can't get rid of them because a they'll go to a crueler master and b his farm will fail and like he could fucking pay them yeah well he can't because his farm is failing well there are other ways out he just doesn't want to take the way that is hardest for him and therefore it is to the detriment of other people like actual people real people i mean i don't know what it means for your farm to be failing but if you know how to grow things you can grow food and just everybody eat the food and get off the grid i mean john and i always plan for the zombie apocalypse and i think that we're going to be fairly well equipped (laughs) you need to be in my commune plans oh my goodness we have totally Yes, we, we have, have tons of garden space. We have a fence so in the yard. It is a very defensible position. Like wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, we we talk with a handful of friends about if we ever need to start a commune. Oh yeah, you guys are totally on our list. Great, good. You're on ours too. Uh, if we ever start a commune, you and I will just like entertain everybody with our wit. We'll just sit around and do this podcast live every week. Every and you know what? I also have practical knowledge of like gardening and like yeah, that building too. shit that too. <laughs> mostly mostly my apocalypse skill set is literally entertainment <laughs> i can garden some stuff I, I will give you that and i can cook fairly well and i can nurture the youths <laughs> for the i'm most very part. good at organizing other people yep that's pretty much it that's pretty much what i do <laughs> okay back to this opera we'll talk about zombie apocalypse in the future oh my god when we do labo m there is a director I know who has a zombie apocalypse Labo M planned out. It's so good. We'll have to have him on. Anyway, okay. Okay, back to this. All right. So Harriet has just escaped from Preston's advances. And Rit, Harriet's mother, tries to comfort her after the confrontation. But she can only give her daughter. It, it, it's not it right. It happens to all of us. Yeah. Like, the, there's no solution to this injustice. And resignation is the only way. It's not right. It's not justice. But that's the way it is. And then Benji, Harriet's brother, runs in to tell him that he overheard that the master is going to sell some of them off to pay off Preston's gambling debts after all. And Josiah, Harriet's fiancé, is one of those being sold off because he's one of the strong ones, so they'll get a high price for him. 
And then Benji reminds his mother and sister of the Underground Railroad, the train that leads you out of bondage, out of Egypt, to the Promised Land, and about the white folks that are willing to help. So they bring Josiah into the loop and they convince him to leave. And Harriet gives him this hurried goodbye as he escapes and promises to follow him north where they can be married in freedom. And then Preston, who can't find Josiah, calls the patrols, which is totally against his father's wishes, by the way. So he calls the patrols to track him down and Harriet manages to delay the patrols so Josiah can escape. And then the master is just appalled that the patrols are here on his property. And he calls off the search, confronts his stupid son for being a belligerent ass. And then he tells him, I've decided to sell the farm and free all of the enslaved people because I can't live with this dishonor anymore. And Preston is, of course, furious at this. And then the confrontation proves to be too much for the old master who collapses. (gasps) Oh, fuck. And Harriet realizes that Preston's going to become the master sooner or later, and she resolves that she will never be his slave. So she is going to escape or uh, or die in the attempt. And then, again, our chorus of enslaved people, they passionately start singing about freedom again. It's, you know, they, they've kind of like come in from the observing sidelines and become part of the action. And then suddenly, Harriet wakes up back in Mr. Garrett's house And she realizes that her dream is telling her that she can't keep going north to freedom and seek her own happiness. She has to go back south like Moses and deliver her people from bondage. And that is the end of Act One. Okay. Reactions? I fucking love it. It's... I was very skeptical when I saw that a white composer wrote her own libretto about a black story like yes. you could have at least talked to a person of color about writing yeah, a libretto i do have issues with that and so i can't you know like as a white person i can't speak to this objectively at all and be like oh yeah it's good um because it was written by a white woman mm-hmm. and the perspective is warped in that regard now granted the history of harriet tubman is well documented but also, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Mm-hmm. Dash Lynn Manuel Miranda. Um, it's his history st- is told by largely white men. So I mean, it's the history that we're supposed to hear about, not necessarily the history that actually happened. That being said, obviously, uh, the protagonist is portrayed in a very positive light. Um, yeah, and it's. I I like that it's not like a and then this happened and then this happened. It's a very dramatically presented yeah. libretto mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it gives you like different motivations for why she did what she did. Not that we need any motivation outside of the obvious her people are enslaved and there is a hope for a better life, but there are other interesting dramatic impetuses impetuses <laughs> at play here i i think it's well written as a story whether or not it's the best way to tell the story like you said like i'm i'm not in a position to say as a white woman and i would be interested in other perspectives on this i definitely would too so far i mean i i agree with you i think the, the the drama of how the story is being told is pretty effective at least in your paraphrasing 
And I usually hate the, and it was all a dream. But actually, this is, <laughs> I mean, her having vivid dreams is part of who she is because of having yeah. had a traumatic brain injury. Yep, so yep. it's actually employed to good effect here, in I my opinion. I think that, yeah, the whole it was all a dream thing mostly gets on my nerves when it's like a fake out, when it's something that could happen but doesn't. And you're supposed to get all tense and worried about it. And then you wake up and it's like, oh, it wasn't true after all. But this is all like flashbacks. This is this is a way mm-hmm. to tell the story without trying to stretch the boundaries of time beyond the audience's ability to suspend their disbelief. Yes. I think that that's this is a good reason to do the whole dream sequence thing. Speaking of suspension of time, uh, it's time to take a pause because my yeah. wine glass is empty. Yes, you need to go and refill that. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Makestickers.com. Makestickers is a family-owned business that operates out of the Chicagoland area. They are currently the number one rated sticker maker online with thousands of reviews, which seems like quite the feat. Makesticker.com's mission is to take the pain out of sticker printing and make it simple, fast, and affordable without compromising quality. There's no minimum order quantity for individual stickers. There's low minimum order quantity of 50 labels, two-day turnaround, which I can attest to, and free standard shipping. They also have amazing customer service. You can call, email, or live chat anytime to speak with an actual person during every step of your order. I personally worked with Sam Wickberg, who was a delight. Hi, Sam. Whether you're promoting your business, creating sick office swag, or memorializing an inside joke from 20 years ago, Makestickers.com has got tons of options for you. Laminated, waterproof, and scratch resistant, split back for easier peeling, no minimum order quantity, glossy and matte finish options, full color and cut to any shape, and all of their products are made in the United States. Oh, and did I mention... For a limited time, our listeners can get $10 off an order of $20 or more by using promo code OPERAPLOT10 at checkout. So scoot on over with your PNGs and JPEGs and get what you need from Makestickers.com. Custom stickers made easy. Act 2. Act 2. We have jumped forward in time. And we now see Harriet as the experienced conductor on the Underground Railroad that we all have learned about in history books and whatnot. And she is eluding the patrol in a series of escapes. And the patrol gets angrier and angrier at the loss of their quote-unquote property and decide that something has to be done. And during one escape, Harriet and Josiah are reunited. They narrowly escape capture when Mr. Garrett arrives just in time to hide them in his house. And he explains that under the newly passed fugitive slave laws, houses can be searched for runaways and that Harriet and the others have to flee to Canada for safety. And Harriet, being who she is, refuses to think of her own safety and instead insists on going back south at least one more time to rescue her parents. Uh Mr. Garrett is like, uh, that's a terrible this is idea. This a terrible idea. <laughs> she's gone back too many times and she's free to so many people. And some people are starting to suspect that she is yeah. this Moses that they're yeah, looking for. Yeah, she's like for. almost a wanted person she at this is. point. She like, is. They're literally saying like, who is this Moses person, right? Yeah. And there's yeah. this huge reward for quote unquote, his capture. Ha ha. <laughs> <And> Clever. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> and Josiah <gasps> pleads with her to escape to safety, but she refuses to leave her family behind. And Josiah is furious, and he tells her, I'm not going to wait for you any longer. And so she leaves. And he's like, good, go alone. <laughs> they part in anger. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, he's afraid for his own life, and he's afraid for her life. Like, I fucking get it. Yeah. I, yeah. I cannot fault Josiah here for the decision. Not at all. Makes. No. Oh, my God. Can you imagine trying to make any kind of decision under this kind of pressure? Jesus Christ. No. Everything is precarious, you know. <laughs> I once <laughs> – here's an example of how making decisions under pressure is never good. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so ready. Uh, I don't think I've ever told anyone this story because it's so embarrassing. I love all the shit that comes out on this podcast. All right. Here we go. All right, so I was a bridesmaid in a wedding, right? (laughs) Very close friends with this person. Called her my best friend at the time. Very, very important relationship in my life. Um, And her older sister was the maid of honor. And I think I probably had a little bit of resentment about that because the, the bride told me it would have been me if it wasn't a family tradition to have her sister be the maid of honor. So that was probably bubbling up inside me just a little bit. <laughs> um, but anyhow, so the, the the prep for this wedding ended up being kind. It was a beautiful wedding at the out at the at the end, but there were some major missing pieces in the prep. It was a little bit of a shit show mm-hmm. um, getting to the altar, and. Like to the point where my husband ended up working some serious magic with the caterers as a guest at the wedding an hour or two before guests started arriving. Um, My husband was there like (laughs) just project managing the vendors. Anyways, um, so it's been a high stress afternoon. (laughs) We're lining up to go down the aisle and literally the music is playing. Right. The music has started. The cue music has started. Now, real quick sidebar here. I have sung in and planned so many weddings at this point that I'm literally at home doing it semi-professionally. So when the maid of honor stops the procession before she gets through the doorway, pauses and turns around and goes, wait, and starts just gingerly handing out tissues to all the bridesmaids in case, you know, they cry during the ceremony. <laughs> I was enraged. <laughs> and I just slapped it out wait, of her hands. Wait, she's in front of everybody in this yeah, She's at the front of the line. No, we're okay. So no one can see us yet. Okay. I thought everybody's like standing in front of this no. church and the oh, maid of God, honor stops no. everything and it's like, here's the tissue, here's the tissue. No, and but you're that's like, what it felt like. No. <laughs> no, but that's what it felt like. Okay, so like probably the back two rows of people were already looking at us because we were coming in from the side and it was an outdoor wedding and there was just like this open archway that we were going to walk through. Music is playing. Cue has gone like places. And she starts walking and then she stops and she turns around and starts going, oh, okay, okay. And starts like handing it out and she's just giddy with like, ooh, tissues. And I was like, stop. <laughs> and I grabbed it and I like threw it on the ground. <laughs> and she looked at me like I was insane. And I, I was like, oh my God, I'm insane. <laughs> <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is a story about how you should not <laughs> make decisions under pressure. 
because the decision I made <laughs> was to throw the tissues on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Literally nothing to do with this opera. It haunts me to this day. And I just had to tell someone. And now I've told all of oh, you. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just... That is the most unrelated tangent. <laughs> oh, my God. So, to reel this back in, <laughs> Josiah's really mad at Harriet for going back to the South and putting herself at risk. Which and she then, did under pressure. Related. As soon as she leaves, his anger dissolves and he sings about how lonely his life is without her and how he truly loves See? her. And yeah, okay. So I was then, immediately filled with regret when I threw the tissues on the ground. Well, then did a patrol arrive and arrest you? Because that's what happens to Josiah. No, but my conscience did. Okay, fair. So the patrol arrives. For the last nearly 10 years. And they capture Josiah. Meanwhile, back at the farm, literally. All of the Aww. enslaved people are mourning the death of the old master who has died. Ah, uh, fuck. And the slave patrol convince Preston that Ben, Harriet's father, has been the one helping runaways escape. And he has to be the Moses that they're trying to catch. So they take Ben to jail where he will stand trial. The fact that he would stand trial at all is a question mark here. Anyway... Rit is really upset that her husband's been captured and everybody's in despair, but Benji decides to go to town to try to find this Moses person and ask for, quote unquote, his help. And then the next morning, Moses arrives and it turns out it's Harriet. <laughs> Surprise. Oh, my God. And Preston, like after they all escape, Preston discovers that Rit is missing and he summons the patrol. Um to the town jail but they're too late ben has already escaped as well oh okay because because when moses comes back in the morning she takes her parents and her brother okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and somehow like gets him out of jail i don't know and so they're really upset about this moses person and they offer a huge fucking forty thousand dollar reward for his capture alive or dead which like Forty thousand uh, dollars back then. In let's let's eighteen hundreds money. <laughs> let's look and see what that is. And like obviously, you know, loosely based. Forty k in eighteen. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's a million. It's one point two million dollars. They don't have that fucking money. The farm is failing. <laughs> yeah, that's a bluff for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, my farm is basically failing in a metaphor sense, a metaphorical sense, and I don't have 40K. <laughs> I don't have 40K, period. I don't have $1.2 million. Your farm is failing. Is that an allegory for opera in general right now? My farm is failing. It's an allegory for I have student loan debt. <laughs> uh, let's not get back into that one because I've Never. already poured my third glass of wine and I'm limiting myself <laughs> to that. <laughs> So we are going to jump cut to Rit and Ben, who've been reunited. Yay. And they're huddled together in a swamp. And so Ben <laughs> builds a fire to warn to, to warm them. And then in a swamp? That's impressive. Right? Good job, Ben. But then Harriet returns from a reconnaissance mission, and she stamps out the fire because it's going to give away their location. She throws the <laughs> tissues on the ground. 
<laughs> Which just makes me think of Lord of the Rings when all the hobbits are like cooking shit and Frodo's like, what are you doing, you fools? Put it out. And then yes. the ring rates find them. <laughs> uh, <sighs> so back north. It's, it's hobbits to eyes and God. Two eyes and God. Two eyes and God. Okay, good. You got the reference. Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> Tell me, where is Gandalf? For I much desire to speak with him. Yeah, we're putting that link on the thing. <laughs> oh, my oh, my God. Flashbacks to, like, the internet a la 2005. 2000, uh, 2008 is okay. when that came out. I okay. was in Norway. I was it's thinking, big, like... It's a big old thing. 2005 was, like, the start of, of like, Flash video. Like, the end of the world. Mm, and like yes. albino black sheep and all of that stuff. Back to this opera. <laughs> Back north, the slave catchers imprison Josiah in a slave pen. And it's like in the middle of this square. And Mr. Garriott, Mr. Garriott, Mr. Garrett and Harriet and all of the abolitionists <laughs> and freed black people slowly start to fill the stage. I've had so much wine. Uh, Mr. Garriott. <laughs> And some of them block the slave catchers while the others break the pen and free the people inside. And suddenly Preston just puts two and two together and realizes that Harriet is the Moses they've been after. So he gets... (laughs) Dude is like beside himself with fury. Like he's already yelling in act one when he's arguing with his dad. But now he's fucking pissed that this woman that he tried to seduce is actually the person who's been eluding his capture and freeing all of his property this whole time. Uh. So he's really angry and he manages to catch her. But Josiah attacks him, knocks him down and helps her escape. And then Preston decides then and there to pursue Harriet whatever the cost. I hope he dies. I hope that's the cost. Uh, mm, I'm just going to tell you the rest of this. <laughs> so okay. uh, Harriet and everybody, they managed to get close to Canada, close to this bridge to freedom. And Josiah tells Harriet that he's sorry that they parted in anger. And instead of feeling rejected, he should have trusted her and recognized that the work she was doing was for the greater good. <gasps> A real live feminist apology, ladies and gentlemen. Let's just sit here in shock for a moment. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Harriet explains that when she came north and started to search for him, all she could hear in her head was the voices of other people behind, like she left behind calling out for help and how she had dreams of like these benevolent white people who would help along the way if only somebody would lead the way. And she realized that she was the one to lead the way and that she had to sacrifice her own personal happiness in order to help others. And Josiah reaffirms his love for her and they sing about how they're soon going to reach safety and freedom. And as they're about to cross the bridge to freedom, Preston and the others arrive in pursuit and Josiah steps out in front of Harriet to shield her and Preston shoots him and Josiah dies in Harriet's arms and then her family gathers around to comfort her and mourn Josiah's death and they say that she will not grieve alone nor will she fight alone they have found freedom with her help and others must too and they will all fight together so that no one is a slave and that all can live together in peace, in harmony, and in freedom. The end. Hang on. <laughs> so Preston shoots Josiah. Preston tries to shoot Harriet and Josiah right, steps right, in the way. Right. Preston effectively shoots Josiah and then, what, walks away? Doesn't... Question mark? Doesn't try to get anybody else? Question doesn't... mark? 
Okay, that's a little bit of a plot hole. It could be a Tina research hole, and it probably is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to chalk it up to that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it's a beautifully told story. It's like... It is like a we definitely need to win an Oscar movie plot kind of story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, loosely based, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like a lot of what you talked about lines up real nicely with what I saw in the movie. So I don't know, like consistency is a good indicator maybe of truth or that people really liked this plot and used it in their research Mm. to create a screenplay i don't know yeah who knows who knows i'm not a historian so um at the beginning we talked about how there are you you said there are three different harriet tubman operas and they're all by thea musgrave that's not true i can add a fourth there are three that i know of (laughs) Okay, but tell me well, about this fourth. <laughs> there's a fourth music and libretto by, and I will likely mispronounce this, Nikairu Okoye. I don't know this person. It is very new. Uh, it is. Is he Japanese? No, it looks. It reads to to my eye. It looks like an African name. Oh, the way yes, you said it, she, I yes, spelled it in my is. head in a Japanese way. Yeah, sorry, pronunciation is hard. Um, she, no, yeah, she is. She is uh, definitely a black woman. I don't know if she is an African or um, if she is born elsewhere, but premiered in 2014 in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's relatively recent. And you can download the libretto to read the story. And I found this at aopopera.org forward slash Tubman. We should put that on our list. I'd be interested to like, I would be interested to compare two operas based on the same subject. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Speaking of things that we're going to post links to, I will post a link to the YouTube video that I watched. It's not really a video. It's the recording from the original production. It's definitely a stage production because you can hear the staging stuff happening, but there is no video. But again, Honestly, you do not need video to understand what is going on dramatically because Thea Musgrave writes it so well. Nice. And the performance is incredible. Like, the singing is amazing. It is fucking good singing. And then that leads me to my next gush of the evening. The soprano who sings Harriet is Cynthia Heyman Coleman. And I did not know who she was until today. But everybody, stop what you're doing. Go listen to her. If it means you don't listen to the rest of this podcast episode, I don't fucking care. She is stunning. But, like, subscribe and rate us. Yeah, but do that, too. If you're about to stop playing subscribe and rate us, please give us five stars. Go. But then go listen to Cynthia Heyman Coleman because that woman knows how to use her instrument. It is glorious. Like, there is not a single poorly produced note in her entire performance of this role. And it is a demanding role. It's lyric. It is stratospheric at times. And then it moves down into this real fully produced chest voice with ease. Like, if if only all sopranos could celebrate their free chest voice like that (laughs) i would like modern opera singing so much better and what's more her role in this opera was her professional debut wow and when she sings it she sounds like she's like several decades into a prolific career i am in love with this voice and her wikipedia page is disgustingly short 
and why she's not more famous is beyond me because it's some of the healthiest singing I've heard in forever. And she currently teaches at Urbana in Illinois. And I would seriously go back to school just to study with her. She is amazing. I know it sounds like hyperbole, like me gushing about Thea Musgrave and me gushing about her, but like, she's so good. She's so good. If anybody is looking for a voice teacher for grad school, seriously check her out because her teaching philosophy is listed under her faculty bio and I wholeheartedly agree with it. And I actually rarely do this, but I'm going to send her an email tomorrow and just tell her how much I appreciate how good her performance is. Uh, and if she responds, I'll let you know. Yeah, <laughs> if she wants to be like a guest on the podcast, like whatever. Oh fine. my gosh. Or like even give us commentary about this, even though it happened like 35 years ago. <laughs> More whatever. than at this point, whatever. Yeah. It. Anyway, she's amazing. Listen to her. I mean, I'll I'll post a link to this opera, but also just listen to her stuff in general. She's so good. Hey, it's Tina from the future here. Just popping in to say that after we recorded this, I did email Cynthia Heyman Coleman and she got back to me the next day. She was so sweet about it. And she said that it was so meaningful to have had the opportunity to perform in an opera, which was so personal and deeply meaningful to her. And she wishes Opera Plot Happy Hour the best. And now back to your regularly scheduled programming. So I guess... I, I We kind of touched on this issue, but it is the issue of a white woman writing a black story. Yeah. And we complain about Porgy and Bess in this light because it's like the only black opera that is regularly produced and mm-hmm. it's written by a couple of white men. Well, three white men. Um, the Gershwin brothers and then some other guy who I can't think of off the top of my head. But she... <laughs> <laughs> sucks to be that other guy. <laughs> <laughs> she was inspired to write this because of Porgy and Bess and thinking like, well, black people need more. And then she's like, well, it's going to be me. I'm going to give them that more. And like she could have at least tried to collaborate. I mean, this is yeah. this is a combined production between her Guggenheim Fellowship, Virginia Opera and Royal Opera. You can't tell me that they didn't have the budget to hire a librettist. Or that she wasn't at least minimally collaborating. Yeah. If she's just one of those creatives that literally the whole thing soup to nuts is just straight out of her brain, then I'm not trying to give her a pass because I definitely feel like you should have gotten the libretto from a black person. Yeah. <laughs> you, should have, you should have hired or worked with a black librettist or a black writer to get this story. But I guess the way she talks about the way that she writes is indicative of just everything that comes out of her as a whole work. Okay, Wagner. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, it feels so icky to compare her to that, mainly I because I don't want to because she's a woman. And maybe because we're too close to it and we don't have the benefit of hindsight to look at this piece, we mm-hmm. we can't really pick at that. And find the fault in it because we don't want to. (laughs) Well, and also, like, you know, decades and centuries too late. But the concept of – this sounds horrible. But from the perspective of of privilege, of white privilege, the concept of not telling black stories on behalf of black people as a white person, it's ridiculous, but it's kind of new. Like, Mm -hmm. that's true. The idea that we should not be speaking for other people 
that we take up way too much space as white voices when talking about black history and black futures and black present is kind of a new concept, at least in the the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And her being, again, not giving her a pass, just trying to contextualize this, her being not a native... Um, North American, not native, but like a an American by birth. Her relationship to race and slavery is going to be entirely different being born in Scotland. So to hold her to exactly the same standard as we would an American born white woman doing the same project is maybe a little bit disingenuous. It doesn't make it okay. But I think when we think about, you know, it was written in the what the 80s. Yep. 1984. It was conceived of in 1980. A lot of swirling ignorance around this topic around that time. Again, not a pass, just context. But yeah, no, it's it's a problem. And that's why when I saw... (laughs) I'm really excited to see that there is a version of this opera, or rather an opera about this by an entirely different composer who is a black woman. Yeah. Like, cool, awesome... (laughs) Let's do more of that, please. Any other thoughts? <sighs> it's been a roller coaster, man. I mean, like, I knew the story and it was still just like whipping me around. Yeah. And I think it's conceived to do that. It definitely mm-hmm. seemed, it, I mean, honestly, when you see things like this in, in the movie industry, you're like, oh, that's just Oscar fodder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, like, mm-hmm. if you're pandering for awards, and I don't, I, I'm sure that it came from a more wholesome place than that. <laughs> just you mean like the way that the story is told being so evocative and, and like the yes. subject matter being so yes recognizable and packed with context that people are very ready to just like absorb and lap up and say yes to rather mm-hmm. than having to make any sort of intellectual leaps. Yes. And I I can also admit that I am saying this from a 2021 perspective and talking about an opera that premiered in 1985. So I can't speak to the (laughs) collective conscious of that time. Yeah. My only my only context for the 80s outside of being born in 1987, which is not enough time to gain any sort of insight, is American Psycho. Mm. Christian Bale. Is that even the 80s or is that the 90s? I'm just assuming that everybody was a psychopath that did coke. I'm I I'm gonna double down on mm, Christian Bale. Man, <laughs> I had a big old crush on him, and that then that backs backstage video of him just absolutely ripping into a tech worker on set. Oh no, oh, just... we're ruining Christian Bale for me. Oh. Christian Bale is probably ruining Christian Bale for me. Uh, thanks for listening. And if you want to send me photos of attractive men who are actually really nice people, like maybe Keanu Reeves, uh, you can email them to me at <laughs> operaplothappyhour at gmail.com. Oh and god. also, do not fucking ruin Keanu Reeves for me. Oh my god. Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves and Dan Levy. If they ever fall off of their pedestals, the world will never be the same. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Tis true, you can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And while you're there, please rate and review us. Please rate and review us. Because it helps other people find the show. And also because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Next week, we have a special guest. <gasps> Hooray. Should we tell them who it is or should we make them wait? 
Let's tell them who it is. Um, a gentleman by the name of the Drunken Tenor will be joining us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I am so excited. Yes, the Drunken Tenor. And if you are curious about this human, you can head over to his website, which is thedrunkentenor.com. He is out of Seattle, I believe, and he's just a very silly human who I had the the joy of getting acquainted with in my <laughs> my foray into opera Twitter. Um, very funny guy. I mean, obviously, he's an opera singer, but he does it in a comedic way, which I think is a really fun twist. Uh, but he's going to join us for next week's episode and offer his perspective, and I'm very excited about it. And he is offering us perspective on the the opera that is the reason i am an opera singer so i know i am i am very much not looking forward to picking that one apart because i don't want to hate it but i know i'm going to by the end of the episode but at any rate (laughs) uh the composer you're going to research is georges bizet (gasps) like carmen bizet yes like carmen bizet but it's it's not not carmen Carmen. oh the plot thickens (laughs) so i'm going to leave you tonight with a quote from thea musgrave herself who when asked by the bbc to offer advice to young composers and musicians she replied don't do it unless you have to and if you do enjoy every minute of it 